To mark the unveiling of our New Look website, we're offering podcast listeners the chance to claim a three-month digital subscription to The Spectator absolutely free, including the magazine delivered via the app, full online access and Spectator newsletters and podcasts. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week is the first few days of a national lockdown because of the coronavirus. So have humans been hubristic in not expecting a pandemic like this to happen? We also have a look at the situation in France and ask whether or not President Macron is dealing with it any better. And at the very end, I talk to historical novelist Antonia Senior about what it's like to be a writer in the age of Hilary Mantel. But first up, a brief disclaimer. Because our staff have also gone home to work, even the Spectators podcast might sound a little bit different to you than what it usually does, as people are dialing in from the safety of their living rooms. Our cover piece this week is a reflective look by journalist Matt Ridley on just why he didn't take the coronavirus quite so seriously. In part, he says, is because humans have stopped expecting infectious diseases to really impact our mortality. James Forsyth also writes in the His Political Column this week that this is a testing moment not just for Boris Johnson, but for our British way of life and the British political system. James joins me down the line now, together with Dr Elisabetta Grappelli, a lecturer in global health at St George's University of London. So James, can you tell us about your thesis this week? Well, Boris Johnson says that he now needs a kind of wartime government. And I think it, therefore it will be judged accordingly. I think British people have tended to, whatever their cynicism about politicians, to have a fairly high level of trust in the state itself. I think if at the end of this crisis the state is seen to have got this broadly right, then I think that that will be unchanged or, or trust in the state will increase a bit. But if the state is perceived to have got this wrong and people look at other countries and think that other countries have had uh, far lower death rates than the UK, for example, at the end of this process, which is going to take about a year or so, then I think that will change people's attitudes towards the state. The state will be deemed to have failed. And I think that people's attitude towards things like official advice will change quite dramatically. I think people will become much more reluctant to listen to what the state says. You know, I think it's very easy to say that this is a test of trust in in this government, which it undoubtedly is. But it is also a broader test for the British state itself. Now, Elisabetta, can you give us an idea of how tough this problem is? One of the people who talked to James for his piece likens solving the crisis to driving in the fog because of how little we know about it. Um, yes, up to a point, I certainly agree with that. Uh, there, there are so many unknowns when uh, when a new virus comes to the stage and uh, we can only go by with, uh, with what we've learned from other viruses, similar, but obviously not the same. But we still need to learn quickly, but at the same time, uh, advise and uh, and try to find out what to do at which time, which is, uh, which is obviously quite challenging. So pandemics themselves have been uh, defined as a stress test for the system. In this particular case, specifically you know, science and, uh, and healthcare systems, but I, um, you know, as pandemics, uh, they, they are a stress to the system for every system in a, in a democracy, especially. James, can you give us an idea of what the next 18 months is going to be lo- looking like? Well, I think that all, that all depends on what progress is made on, on various medical fronts. You know, I, I think that the most realistic 
hope to cling to is that Public Health England manages to find a test for who has had the virus. Because once we know who has had the virus and recovered from it, those people are, are seem to be highly unlikely to get it again. And therefore, they can resume normal life. So, I mean, that means that three things can change. The first thing is but you wouldn't need to send any key workers who've already had it home unnecessarily. At the moment, there are a lot of very frustrated doctors and medics because as soon as they display any symptoms of coronavirus, they're having to go home and self-isolate, which further reduces the capacity of a health service. That would solve that problem. The second thing is those who have had it and recovered could volunteer at minimal risk to their own health. So they could be delivering food and groceries to the vulnerable. They could be helping out you know, with mopping floors in hospitals and all that stuff. And and thirdly, and and perhaps most importantly, from an economic point of view, those people could go back to work, go back to spending money, could be allowed out of their houses to socialise and all those things. So I think that that is the most likely thing that could change the game, because I think otherwise you are looking at a very long period with the economy in limbo. Elizabeth, from where you're standing, we're told that the UK is three weeks behind Italy in terms of the, how, how bad the situation is. Is there anything we can learn from Italy? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, um, Italy is, is a scenario, but it's not necessarily the inevitable scenario for, for the UK. And uh, I think what we've learned from the Italian situation is that uh, what kind of a, of a stress to a Western healthcare system an epidemic can be, but also where, where to look in terms of bottlenecks and uh, weaknesses, and specifically hospital facilities and intensive care units. But again, specifically in terms of personnel, specialistic equipment and personal protective equipment. So nice and tailored uh, advice, if you want, that could have been learned, uh, that has been learned from, from Italy. But also the Italian situation has showed us uh, the challenges that, that, uh, of, of community engagement, of, of communication. Because even as scientists, uh, if uh, we can advise on the best practice or on the, we can work on, uh, on the latest drug or a vaccine, the reality is that we need to have everybody on board and we need to communicate properly and engage and put some of the responsibility onto the individuals. And Italy has struggled a little bit with that. So I think uh, the UK, by looking at what's uh, happening and happened in Italy, certainly can uh, um, can learn from that. Elizabeth, one of the things that struck me about Matt Ridgely's cover piece for The Spectator this week was that he was saying that we should have been expecting something like this to happen, but we didn't, as he says, the defeat of infectious diseases as a cause of death has been so complete as to seem invincible. Do you think we were too lax in not expecting and not preparing more for something like this? We had certainly a few warning signs uh, and um, only a few years ago, Ebola outbreak and before of that, um, SARS, uh, the SARS number one, the coronavirus as well. And generally speaking, um, any scientist and especially virologists like me, always been aware that uh, it was a matter of when, not if. But at the same time, uh, possibly we have tended to be very optimistic that when was not going to come anytime soon and very optimistic about our ability to respond to it. And now we are facing not just with the theoretical questions about when, because obviously when is now. Mm. And James, tentatively turning our minds towards what might happen after this. I mean, do you think that this will change the way Britain looks? I, th- I think it 
undoubtedly will. First of all, you know, we're a couple of days into people having to self-isolate and all that, and already it changes how people think about the world. I think I think it is going to push issues to the top of the political agenda that that might otherwise not have been there. One obvious one is, you know, what obligations companies in the gig economy have to their contractors. You know, I mean, should they be treating them more like employees? It also obviously makes everyone look at the welfare safety net. And then I think there's there's probably also two other shifts. One is in the same way that after World War II, politicians became much more interested in food security because of Britain's experience there, the threat to, to essentially try and starve the country out. I think people are going to become much more concerned about medical security now. I think you know there's going to be a much greater desire for medical supply chains to kind of basically exist within the UK itself. So the UK having its own ability to produce vaccines, ventilators, all of that kind of thing, I think is going to be a consequence of this. And I think it is also probably going to change attitudes towards China. I'm struck talking to cabinet ministers how much kind of cold fury there is about the belief that essentially SARS should have been a massive warning to China that these live wildlife markets needed to be closed and that they haven't been closed and then China wasn't straight with the world about the, the spread of this disease when it first started and that all this has made the situation worse. So I think all of these issues are going to come up the political agenda. I also think there is another question here which is you know Boris Johnson talks about leading a wartime government. Now, you don't need to tell the guy who's Churchill's biographer that you can win the war but lose the peace in terms of domestic politics. I think this is one of the big challenges, which is, you know, nearly all of the answers at the moment to this are are about a larger state. And that is obviously going to pose quite a big challenge to a Tory party going forward. And Elisabetta, what can we do as humans to prevent something like this from happening in the future? Is it, as James says, you know, to have tighter regulations on hygiene in places like China? So that certainly helps, you know, being a, a little bit more responsible or aware of actually that uh, viruses or other uh, pathogens or microbes are not just something that uh, belongs to, to the lab or something that we have a cure for, you know, in, in just a few days. We need to be, I think, a, a little bit more aware. And generally speaking, understanding that, again, this is, uh, this is virology, viruses are a part of life. And so we need to also understand that life is difficult to predict and uh, we need to be responsive. And I know that as, as human beings, we like uh, to have the, either the black or the white uh, sort of uh, work on a, on a binary system. But the reality uh, that a pandemic reminds us is that there are so many shades in the middle, nuances, and therefore we need to be able to, to respond to those because that's part of life. Thank you, James and Elisabetta. Next, the coronavirus is obviously a global phenomenon, but Jonathan Miller writes in this week's issue, France seems to be dealing with it worse than other places, at least politically. So what is the situation like in France and is it pushing Macron's government to breaking point? Jonathan Miller joins me down the line now, together with journalist Katie Lees, who's also the host of the Europeans podcast. So Jonathan, can you tell us what the situation is like in France at the moment? Well, you know, I hate to disappoint your, uh, your listeners, our listeners. Actually, it is idyllic. I'm looking out the window at a, a, a clear blue sky. I have an, an attestation de dérogation in my pocket, which allows me to go outside and walk the dogs. I no longer have to kiss all the women in the village when I encounter them on the sidewalk. I, 
I can merely I can merely clasp my my palms together and say namaste, which confuses them somewhat. But generally, there is a there is to be honest a kind of odd sense feeling atmosphere as as uh, people are trying to absorb this really utterly unprecedented situation and 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 make sense of it and and rejigger their lives which is presenting many many challenges and what are some of the measures that the government has put in place We've... well you have to uh, you 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 can still go out uh, to do uh, i'm i'm looking at one of these forms now and there there are four particular things that you are allowed to do you're allowed to make the déplacement which is to leave your house to exercise a professional activity if you're indispensable for that activity and you can't do this through teleworking you can make a déplacement for, for uh, to make purchases of première nécessité in authorized establishments which I'm happy to say include tobacconists for smokers <laughs> You can uh, you can make a déplacement for reasons of health. Uh, you can make a déplacement for, uh, for 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 overriding family reasons or for aid to old people or for looking after children. And you can make a uh, a brief déplacement in in proximity to your home uh, for the for reasons of physical activity. But you may not practice sport. And you may look after your animals. That means you can take your dogs for a walk. Other than that, you, uh, you are, we are all under house arrest. We're not allowed to invite friends over. And uh, we're not allowed to stage dinner parties. And this is now day two. And we've got a couple of, we've got 12 or 13 days to go. I don't think anybody expects that this, uh, this, this couvre-feu, this, uh, this, this curfew is going to be lifted soon. It's very, very quiet Morale is pretty good. There's been a bit of siege activity at the supermarkets here, but we're in a pretty semi-rural part of France here, and things are pretty calm. We are getting reports that up in Paris and some of the sensitive suburbs of Paris, there's quite aggressive behaviour going on in some of the supermarkets. The police are having some difficulty maintaining this uh, situation. But for the moment, I think it's going okay. Now, Katie, you've been reporting on the stimulus for the economy that Macron has been pumping in. Just tell us, give us an idea of how much he's pumping into the economy and what it's going to be doing. Yeah, it's huge. There's about 300 billion euros of government-backed loans. He said in his speech on Monday, one of the key things he said was, no company, big or small, will be allowed to go bankrupt. There's also about the, an initial package of about 45 billion euros in terms of like delayed taxes and things like that. So yeah, there's been like a bunch of leaders now coming out announcing these big stimulus packages. Boris Johnson followed suit in the UK, Spain as well. But Macron was kind of the first national leader in Europe to do that. And I think people, business owners particularly, found that very reassuring. And Jonathan, you point out that Macron's popularity was waning before this. I mean, what do you make of his handling of the situation so far? I think his popularity was very, very low. He's never really been much loved by the French people. I think his performance over the course of this virus has been very inconsistent and practically incoherent. It was only 10 or 11 days ago that he took Brigitte to the theatre in Paris in an effort to demonstrate that life would continue as normal. And this was, of course, before he closed all the theatres in his speech uh, last week. Uh, This week, he announced these uh, very uh, draconian measures of essentially locking down the whole country 
There's a lot of reports circulating on social media, which often shouldn't be confused with real life, of real problems in the health service, of difficulties in hospitals, of a lack of basic equipment. And people I know who work in hospitals are telling me that there's shortages of very basic things. I think his performance will have to be measured uh, somewhat later, but on the whole, I think his goose may be cooked by this. I, I think the economy was already fragile. His reform program has been suspended. I think there's very little hope of him reviving it at this point. I, I would question that. I mean, there was a poll released after his speech on Monday night announcing the lockdown, and he saw a massive bump. I think 76% of French citizens said that they found his performance in that speech to the nation convincing, which is like way out of line with the kind of approval ratings that he's been getting up till now. I mean, he's generally been on approval ratings of about 30%. I think it's a bit too early to write him off. I mean, look, Crises can really make or break a leader. And obviously, he hasn't been having a great time up until now. There have been the Gilets jaunes protests, these massive protests as well over his pension reforms. I think French people found him quite reassuring and quite convincing in his address to the nation the other day. And it remains to be seen how he's going to handle this. Well, to trot out the old, the old journalism uh, cop-out, you know, time will tell. I think, I think any bump will possibly prove to be somewhat uh, transitory. Uh, I think people are going to ask why they were asked to go vote, why it was essential to go vote on Sunday, and then by Monday it was not even possible to leave your house without a derogation. People will rally around whatever leader they've got at a time of crisis, I suppose. Uh, I'm not convinced this bounce in popularity will prove durable, but as as I said, we'll see. Uh, I think there's there's too much inconsistency and too much incoherence and and I live in the south and and Macron has never been particularly popular here so the people I've been talking to are predisposed not really to like him he didn't do well in the election that's for sure on Sunday his uh, his the candidate he supported did very poorly and Katie Jonathan there mentioned opposition do you see opposition leaders you know launching into Macron using scoring political points in this moment of crisis yeah, a little bit. I mean, the elections was one interesting thing. So we had these elections on Sunday and everyone was thinking, what on earth is happening here? Like on one hand, you're telling people not to go to the shops, to stay inside as much as possible. And then you're also trying to have this massive thing where millions of people go to polling stations and vote. I think it's important to bear in mind that, yes, those elections were a bit of a screw up in retrospect. But Macron was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because the opposition in the week beforehand had been like bawling that these elections must go on because otherwise it's a sort of democratic travesty and it will just be sort of Macron making a mockery of the elections. So I, I think it's kind of hard that the government is picking up all of the flack for that when it was really the opposition that had been forcing those elections to take place. Katie and Jonathan, thanks very much. And finally, for something a little bit different, which might also give you an idea of what to do while you're self-isolated at home, author Antonia Senior writes in this week's issue about the plight of historical fiction writers in the age of Hilary Mantel, likening them, including herself, to Salieri to Mantel's Mozart. So is it really all that bad? Antonia joins me down the line now, together with... Guardian columnist and former Booker judge Mark Lawson, who recently reviewed Hilary Mantel's latest book, The Mirror and the Light, for the Spectator's book section. So, Antonia, you write that it's dispiriting being a historical novelist in the age of Hilary Mantel. 
Well, it's dispiriting and, and marvellous um, at the same time because most of us who write historical fiction do it because we love historical fiction, we're readers of it, we adore it, we kind of operate in that world. So to have writing so, so amazing and brilliant and transcendent in the, in, the, in the genre that you love is fantastic. But then as a writer, you're sort, of, you're sort of faced with your own inadequacy when you read her prose constantly. And that, I think, is, is difficult. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love her as a writer, as, as a reader. As a writer, I'm just sort of envious and slightly despairing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, you judge, review and write historical fiction for a living. So, so can you tell us what makes a good historical fiction novel? What are the things that you're looking for? So in historical fiction, in common with obviously all fiction, it has to do certain things brilliantly like plot and character. But um, in historical fiction, I think setting is obviously the thing that sets it apart from other genres, apart from maybe sci-fi. It's a kind of exercise in world building. It's an exercise in creating a past that seems authentic. It will never be authentic. It can never be authentic, but it has to seem viscerally and vividly real at the time of reading it and that's the skill and joy of historical fiction really and it's one of the reasons Mm. why Mantel is so brilliant because she can create a world that seems entirely as if she's just sitting around on the edge of the Tudor court watching what's going on writing it all down having a laugh you know recording it in person it's it's almost astonishing that she she isn't really a time traveler. Mark, you wrote a glowing review of the latest book in the recent Spectator. And in it, you quote Muriel Spark saying that when it comes to historical fiction, knowing the end can increase rather than decrease the suspense. I assume you think Mantel is able to do that. I think she is. Dame Muriel Spark, who Dame Hillary has been very influenced by and has acknowledged this, she wasn't just talking about historical fiction. She was talking about any fiction at all. It goes against what everyone thinks, but Muriel Spark got into trouble with her editors and publishers quite early on because, and this is what we now call a plot spoiler, but in The Private Mystery in Brody and others, she'll have a sudden bracket and then she'll say who would die of cancer at the age of 29 in Glasgow or whatever. So you know what's going to happen. And the people working on the books, you say, well, you can't do that because it removes suspense. And she said, no, they want to know how that's going to happen or knowing that the person's going to die gives their life a greater weight and poignancy. And I think, yes, Mantel brings that off to an extraordinary degree because there's a moment early on where she, or Cromwell, we should say, recaps what has happened to Anne Boleyn at the end of the previous book. And so we doubly know the material, but we know it from history and we know it from the, from the previous volume. And yet it doesn't matter at all because we're determined to know, we're shown the effect it has on Cromwell. And that's what the book, the books are about. Antonio, one of the things that people criticise Mantel consistently for, one of the few things that they do, is what Mark called in his review the Mantel referent subclause. Mark, can you just first just explain what you meant by that? And Antonio, I'd love to hear what you thought about how she writes in that way. Um, yes, this is indeed the only real controversy um, surrounding these books, other than some people thinking, as even Antonio and I would grudgingly acknowledge, that the third one is perhaps a little bit too long. But I mean, <laughs> You know, we'll let Hilary Mantel get away with that. But the other one that comes up a lot, and I am told, particularly comes up at uh, book groups, is that normally, and people are taught this at school, you're taught to write a sentence so that you can say, you know, he picked up his coat and you know who the he is and who the his replies to. Because Mantel is doing something complicated in that the books are 
from inside the head of Thomas Cromwell. What she does, and she also has another problem, which is, well, Antonio, I'm sure, will tell us that one of the problems of historical fiction, as opposed to stuff people make up, is that you're stuck with the real names, and everyone is called Thomas in um, <laughs> court. It just is a fact. I mean, they all are. And that's why Call Me Risley is called Call Me Risley, because he's yet another Thomas. Anyway, so Hilary Mantel started writing, he, Cromwell, picks up the knife. And then uh, she stopped doing it for a bit. And then there was a basic problem that because you're inside his head and there are often 10, 15 men in the scenes, you simply don't know who it is. In the third volume, there's one that I just found very ugly, where she says he himself, Cromwell, picked up the fish knife. And I thought that she'd got herself into a bit of a pickle over that. And it is difficult. Uh, on the other, in another way, it works brilliantly, it's inside his head. So when he's promoted and he becomes Lord Cromwell, the first time it becomes he, Lord Cromwell, because we think probably inside the head of, say, Donald Trump or Piers Morgan, to take two examples, they probably, <laughs> that probably is what goes on in their head. They think he, Donald Trump, he, Piers Morgan. So I thought that was brilliant because it shows the egotism and that he, he's even referring himself to, to himself in his head as that. But it is, it's controversial and a lot of, uh, some people have actually said they won't read the books because of it. Mm. Antonia. Well, uh, Does that bother you, Antonia? No, I mean, partly because I love Mantel's Cromwell a bit more than I should love a fictional character. It's a bit creepy. <laughs> and when he first says he, Lord Cromwell, I was cheering and I loved that. I was like, it was, you know, the kind of that journey of um, starting at the feet of his father on the cobbles of Putney. And then he, Lord Cromwell, each time, each time is an affirmation of how far he's come, which is wonderful. I do understand how some people can have a problem with it and it, it takes some getting used to. The thing that it does do, which is just absolutely extraordinarily brilliant, is just have, have the sense of the narrator just constantly squatting on Cromwell's shoulder. You're so up close mm. to him. You're much closer. I mean, because of the other obvious technical way of doing what she wants to do is just have it written in the first person. You know, I did this, I did that. But by doing it the way she does it, it's sort of... he he's, he. Cromwell is a thinking man, he's a guarded man, he's an interesting man, and, and it's almost sometimes like a commentary on himself by him through Mantel, so it kind of works in all these levels. And once you get used to it, and I can understand that, that, that it does take some getting used to, I think it just works brilliantly. Now, I think Antonio is right about that, that you see Mantel, who I've also, I've also interviewed a number of times about this series, has explained this, that if she used the classic third person he picks up his coat or Cromwell picks up his coat, then that is Mantel as narrator yeah, or the voice yeah. of the book saying that. And, the, you know, these are deep technicalities, but then she's a technically brilliant writer, so she thinks about these things. And that is, I'm afraid, you know, that is different from being inside his head. Mm. Um, and so I think that has to happen. Now, this is, um, this is really interesting to me because although Antonio and I both really, really like this book, there is a difference between Antonia Hilary Mantel and me, in that they both like and even love Cromwell, and I dislike him. <laughs> and it's interesting to me... Well, no, it's just interesting to me that... But that's one of the great things about fiction, I think, or indeed writing, is that it can accommodate both those responses. You see, Hilary Mantel has basically said she loves him, and Antonia's just said the same. I mean, seriously. I do. seriously. I do. Ruthless and vicious as he can be, he's just brilliant. <laughs> he's, he's... 
he's very funny and that you know that th- that comes out quite a lot in this uh in this last book in the trilogy yeah. more than yeah. in others actually he just is constantly has a very wry slightly fatalistic slightly sort of arch take on everything and i love it it's brilliant i just want to have a you know a drink with him and uh talk about how much we hate catholics or something i don't know whatever he would want to talk about with me Antonia, none of us are going to be able to go out for a drink with anyone for the foreseeable future. But when we are at home reading and catching up on uh, all the things that we missed out, what what do you recommend that Mantel fans read next? Oh, good question. Well, I mean, it is actually an amazing time for historical fiction. There's some incredibly good writers uh, writing. One of the reasons why this trilogy is so brilliant, I think, is because it is political. It's incredibly political, as Marcus said, but it's also uh, the Tudors are enduringly popular because they're an instance where the political is also the familial, right? So mm. the kind of uh, sexual and romantic power plays of the king are actually political. And so there's another brilliant couple of books by Sarah Dunant uh, about the Borgias, who, which is another kind, which is a similar sort of. A uh, similar sort of era where you get a very personal family drama actually also being an incredibly important political drama. And she writes brilliantly as well. And those books are amazing. The first one's Blood and Beauty. So definitely those. And there's some other fantastic writers. Um, historical crime is a massive thing at the moment if you want some kind of slightly something less serious. And there's some brilliant practitioners of that, like Andrew Taylor or Abir Mukherjee, who writes great books set in um, early colonial India. I mean, I could I could go on this. I am yeah. very jealous of people who haven't read the three of them coming into self-isolation. I, think it I haven't. You I'm haven't? very excited oh. to start. <laughs> yeah. I'm hugely jealous. Antonia and Mark, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to this first episode of the Edition podcast brought to you from living rooms in the UK and beyond. If you're stuck for what to do when you're at home, why not pick up an issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed on the podcast this week, as well as Sajid Javid's diary, Matthew Parris on a hidden thrill of Apocalypse, and David Badil's notebook. And if you haven't checked out our New Look website, what are you waiting for? Go to spectator.co.uk to find the new home for all our articles, podcasts and more. Plus, to mark the unveiling of this website, we're offering podcast listeners the chance to claim a three-month digital subscription to The Spectator absolutely free, including the magazine delivered via the app, full online access and Spectator newsletters and, of course, podcasts. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free to get this offer. Thanks for listening, stay safe and join us again next week. (laughs) 